0: John chapter 4, verses 1. I'm going to read this, this whole dialogue between Jesus and the woman at the well. Uh, I'm very excited about the message here today. I really am. For, for everyone that's here today, and for anybody who's listening right now online, or who may listen later, I'm very excited about this message because it's a word the Lord has laid upon my heart. I know it's the heart of God. It's the heart that he has placed in me and a love for people, a love for his word or a love for his name. And um, I just want us to be encouraged here today as we read this very well-known account of Jesus and the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. But we're going to read here John chapter 4 verse 1. Before we do, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I thank you for every person that is here, every person that is watching, that is listening. And I pray that you would bless them, that you would encourage them. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to hear, help us to read, help us to come under the authority of your word and your desire to work in our lives. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would help me to speak, help me to clearly articulate what your heart is and just simply make me a mouthpiece. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would give us discernment and the ability to receive what is spiritually discerned and to apply it to our lives be with us here today god in a special way lord we want your presence if your presence does not go with us we will not go forward we need your presence we need your work in our life make yourself known to every single person in some special way Whatever they may be facing, all of us are in different areas and chapters of our life. But you are willing and desirous to speak to every single person, to every single issue that we face. And so, help us to have ears to receive, and help us to walk in obedience to what you tell us here today. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples did, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore being wearied, From his journey set thus by the well, it was about the sixth hour, or noontime, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well And drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have said, Well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir... I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. (coughs) You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is... When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with the woman, yet no one said, what did you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went away into the city, and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. Now go down to verses 39 through 42. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed or many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The title here today for this message is the same primary major point that I want to make to you here today and the thought that I want you to leave with. And it's this, Jesus wants you. Jesus wants you. Jesus doesn't need you. Jesus is not incomplete without you. Because you become a Christian, because you give your life to ministry, doesn't bring um, a special completion to the life of God. You're not a gift to God. The Bible says that all of us have gone astray and all of us have rebelled against God and we're natural enemies of God. But Jesus still wants you. He still wants us. And we're going to see, he desires and seeks after this woman in this story because the whole reason that he came, which he described in the previous chapter speaking to Nicodemus, is that because God so loved the world, he gave his only son. A world who hated him. A world that was full of darkness. A world that had completely rebelled against the king of the universe. And he comes to a treasonous, betraying, rebellious, hateful people because he loves them. Not because of a particular potential he saw in you. Not because he saw some good in you. You're not good, the Bible tells us. It's because he loves you. And He desires that all men would be saved. He wants you. He desires you. And He seeks to save those who are lost. Some years ago, I was listening to a Christian minister. And he was relating in his own life an experience that he had while he was in his college years. He and some friends had invited an unbelieving girl who had lived a sinful lifestyle. She, she was completely, uh, Christianity was completely foreign to her, but they had invited her to this college service, I think it was on the college campus where they were attending, to, to be a part of this service, hoping to minister to her. And the subject matter of that service was sexual purity. And the speaker began the sermon by taking out a beautiful rose. A beautiful rose. And he took it and he gave it to the one person in the front row and he instructed them, as I continue to preach and speak, I want you to take the rose, take a look at it, and pass it to the person next to you. And by the end of his message, that rose had been passed all the way through, every single hand in that auditorium, till it made its way to the person in the back row, and the rose was brought up, back up to this minister. And by the time he was done and he held this rose in his hand, the rose did not look like it did at the very beginning of the message. It had been handled by who knows how many hands, touched and handled and and dropped maybe. And it was missing petals and it was bruised and the stem was broken. It was droopy and it was not a beautiful rose anymore. And the minister made this point in relation to purity. Purity. Now look at this rose. It once was so pure and beautiful beforehand. Now look at it now. Who wants that? Who would want you in this state? And this Christian minister relates his absolute disgust with that statement from that minister. Because in his mind he thought, Jesus wants the rose. Jesus will take the rose. Doesn't matter how broken or battered. Doesn't matter how corrupt and impure you are. Jesus will take the rose. Jesus will take what is so unredeemable and disgusting and evil and dark, and He will redeem that thing. He will make all things new. He'll exchange mourning for joy, ashes for beauty. Jesus, give Jesus the rose. What everybody else will reject, what everybody will see as disgusting and impure and dark and evil, Jesus will take it and make it into something beautiful. And that's what I want to relate to you here today. Jesus wants you. I so appreciate everything Hunter said earlier because it goes perfectly with the message here today. doesn't matter how dirty you feel. doesn't matter what you've done ten seconds ago Ten days ago, ten years ago, Jesus redeems, Jesus seeks, Jesus loves so that he can make us people for his glory. And he does that by seeking you, by saving you, by changing you. He doesn't keep you how you are. He seeks to save us and to change us into something beautiful and glorious and wonderful. This conversation that Jesus has with this woman at the well is significant for three reasons it's significant for three reasons number one the length of this conversation that jesus has with this woman is significant this is the longest conversation we see jesus have with any other person this is the longest recorded conversation that jesus has with somebody including his disciples it's with this woman at the well the sheer length of this conversation Indicates to us and implies to us that there is something important that that John, who wrote this gospel, that he was trying to relate in the context of this dialogue between Jesus and this woman. He goes to great lengths to include as much as he can. It's the longest recorded conversation we have. Another reason that this conversation that Jesus is having is so significant is the message that is declared in the midst of this story. The story, but the story between uh, Jesus and this woman, it reveals the true nature of why John wrote his gospel. Uh, John chapter 20, verses 31, John tells us the reason for writing this gospel. He says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. And in this dialogue between Jesus and this woman, we see this beautifully come to pass, don't we? In the life of this woman and in the life of a whole village of Samaritans. The very last thing that they say at the end of this story is that we have come to believe that this is the Christ the Savior of the world. Not just because you told us, but because we have heard him for ourselves. Another reason, thirdly, the last reason this conversation that Jesus has with this woman is significant is that the way in which this story is placed in John's narrative The placement of this story is significant. Listen closely. John records this story immediately after telling us about his late night conversation in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. And if you were to read John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 continuously and don't break it up, you cannot help But notice and feel the tension that is created between the two interactions that Jesus has with these two totally different people. The juxtaposition or the contrast between these two interactions, these one-on-one interactions with Jesus is halting, if you will. You can just feel the tension that is there and the the difference that is there, the contrast. In John chapter 3, he is having a discussion with a man. That man, he is named Nicodemus. He's a religious man. He's a moral man. He's an influential man. He's a respected man. And he meets Jesus in the middle of the night. You go immediately to John chapter 4. And this discussion is with a woman, which is significant. And we'll look at that in a moment. The woman is unnamed. We never know her name. And the spotlight is on her immoral past. And Jesus is speaking to her in the middle of the day, out in the open. And there is great beauty in this contrast. And John was very intentional in the way that he did this. The, just This is so beautiful. The way that he contrasts Jesus' interaction with these two different people, it shows the nature of who Jesus is and why he came and who he desires. It shows that Jesus came to reach the up and out, and he came to reach the down and out. doesn't matter where you come from, who you are. Noble birth, not so noble birth. Jesus came for every person. And it further indicates, in the case of Nicodemus, that no one is beyond the need of God's grace. You're never so holy and righteous and good and charitable that you don't need God's grace. You're never so moral that you don't need God's grace. And it also indicates by his interaction with this woman that no one is too far beyond God's reach of grace. He reaches to the lowest of the low, and truly all of us are the lowest of the low. I don't care how noble a person may be, we're all down and out. And for the person who may seem so unreachable, so disgusting, so darkened by sin, so so engrossed in their sin and in evil works, Jesus is able to reach that individual where we can so easily give up on people in our own strength and capacity. And energy, Jesus never stops reaching for those whom he seeks to uh, save and bring life to. And in keeping with his intention in writing this gospel, John is revealing Jesus as the Christ who is the Savior of both Jew and Gentile, of all people, for all time, doesn't matter who you are where you come from, he has come to seek and to save the lost that they might believe and receive life. And it's amazing when you look at Jesus how he had the ability to minister to all kinds of people. All kinds of people that he crossed paths with. He absolutely broke the mold, didn't he? When it comes to what is the ministry mold. When he came on scene, he absolutely decimated all of the expectations of the religious crowd. When I I read the life of Jesus, it's almost comical and it almost takes you aback at the audacity, the brazenness, the, the, the defiance and open rebuke that Jesus exhibits when he speaks to the religious crowd of his day. Those who were on the upper echelons of Judaism. And he completely disregarded and could care less about Their preconceived ideas, their opinions about him, and their expectations of who he is and what he ought to do as the Messiah. And he was criticized for everything he did for that very reason. He couldn't heal on the right day. He couldn't say the right things. And he couldn't hang out with the right people. One point of contention was with this religious crowd was the kind of people he hung out with. Jesus was not afraid to be seen with those who were uh, of bad reputation or disreputable. Not that he necessarily, in our context, went into a bar and sat down at the bar and ate with people, but that he actually ministered to, had discussions with those who were considered the scourge of society. He sat down and ate with tax collectors, with sinners. He spoke to and ministered to people who were outcasts and that the religious crowd would never consider even being near. If you recall, when Jesus is eating with some Pharisees and His disciples, in one of the Gospel accounts, how that a woman comes in and she has an alabaster box and she's weeping behind Jesus. And she comes up behind Jesus and she begins to weep upon his feet and draw his feet with her tears, and then she anoints his feet with costly oil. And one of the reactions by the Pharisees is if he is really a righteous man, if he's really the Christ, does he not know that this is a sinful, dirty woman? Jesus didn't care what people, people thought, he didn't care. And I I hate to admit that there are churches who show partiality. And, And I know it exists because I've seen it, and I know it exists because in James chapter 3, James warns against it. Don't show favoritism in the house of God, don't show favoritism to the person who has it all supposedly together. The person who, who has a lot of money in their bank account. The person who has nice clothes. The person who smells good. The person who can do most in return for you. Don't show favoritism to people. Don't, don't, give, don't give the person who's rich a more preferable place to sit until the person, you go sit in the back or you sit on the floor. You treat everybody the same because you know why? That's what Jesus did. That's how Jesus treated everybody. Everybody. As a matter of fact, the people who, who most gravitated towards Jesus were the poor and the lowly and the nobodies. He, he wasn't relevant enough to hang with the politicians of his day, to hang with the religious of his day, to, to hang with the influencers of his day. He was content with, to be with the scourge of the earth, if you will, because those are the ones who would receive him. And Jesus' ministry to this woman, it's no different. It is absolutely no different. And in order for us to understand just how precious and significant this interaction is, before I get into some practical application for us, we need to take some special note of the details that the Bible tells us about this woman. Number one, we know that she is a woman. And this is very significant this is, this is seen in the fact that when Jesus talks to this woman and says, give me a drink, she's taken aback. She's, she's, she's surprised that he, a man, would talk to a woman, and also that she was a Samaritan. And also when his disciples came back, they were kind of surprised and startled that he was talking to a woman alone in the middle of the day there out at that well. And in, the first, in first century Israel or first century Roman Empire, and in centuries previous and centuries after, women are treated as second class citizens. And you can even see that in current days in some countries, even in our own countries past, where women were not completely treated equal. Their testimony was not seen as, as uh, good as men in court, and they were treated as almost as property. He's speaking to a woman. This woman is a Samaritan woman. She's not just a woman. She's a Samaritan woman. This is significant because, a little history background, when Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel, it divided in two, into the northern key, kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And in 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire overcame and conquered the northern uh, kingdom of israel and took many of those people displaced them and took them into captivity into assyria the invaders then brought in gentile colonists from the assyrian empire so the northern kingdom of israel a lot of those people the choicest people were taken out taken captive to assyria and the assyrian empire they brought in gentile colonists from all over the assyrian empire People from Babylon and other places. You can read about that in 2 Kings. To resettle the land that they had just removed those Jews from. And the foreigners brought with them their own pagan idols, which the remaining Jews, there were still Jews there in the northern empire, and which the remaining Jews began to worship alongside the God of Israel. Israel. And inevitably, intermarriages began to take place. So you had these Gentiles from various places in the Assyrian Empire. They were brought in to colonize this place that had been displaced by the Jews who were uh, let out captive. And they began to intermarry with those Jews who were left behind. And meanwhile, in the southern kingdom of Judah, which fell to Babylon in 600 BC, its people too were carried off into captivity for 70 years. But 70 years later, a remnant of 40,000 people was permitted to return and rebuild Jerusalem. And the people who now inhabited the former northern kingdom were called Samaritans. So those who intermarried, those who were pure Jews, they intermarried with these colonizers from the Assyrian Empire in the northern kingdom, and they became impure in the eyes of the supposed pure Jews in the southern kingdom. Those who were in the southern kingdom, those who were supposedly full-blooded monotheistic Jews, detested the mixed marriages and worship of their northern cousins. And so walls of bitterness were erected on both sides and did nothing but harden for the next 550 years to the point that we find Jesus in his conversation with this woman. There are 550 years of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. There's a racial element. Racism is nothing new. Nothing new. It's existed from the very beginning of time because it's a sin problem. And there is a racial element to this in that the Jews considered the Samaritans dogs, they considered them half breeds, and they were impure. And they looked at them as nobodies. The religious element is that the Samaritans, though they do consider Abraham their father, and do consider themselves as a part of the covenant people to an extent, they only accept the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, as inspired Scripture. And so the Samaritans, they didn't take any of the prophets, they didn't take any of the other historical literature, they only took the first five books as being inspired Scripture, and that's what they lived by. Furthermore, in order to uh, compete against the temple that was in Jerusalem, they established a temple on Mount Gerizim. Which is that woman sitting there at Jacob's well, I'm sure when she referenced, we worship on this mountain, she pointed to Mount Gerizim, which would have been seen from their perspective. And so there's this religious element where it's a conglomeration of Judaism and pagan rituals over a course of centuries. And Jesus is interacting with this woman. And we learn from the very beginning of chapter 4 that it says that Jesus said, I must go through Samaria. Jesus is in the southern area of Israel. He's in Judea, near Jerusalem. And he wants to go back to Galilee. Galilee is in the northern portion. Samaria is right in the middle. Usually Jews will either skirt around Samaria or altogether avoid Samaritans or avoid Samaritan villages. But Jesus goes, takes the direct line to Galilee and goes through this city. And they've been traveling, he's wearied, he's tired, he's thirsty, and he finds himself near this woman interacting with her. Something else we learn about this woman is that not only is she a woman, not only is she a Samaritan woman, but she is a sinful Samaritan woman. She's had five husbands and now she's shacking up with a man who's not her husband. She's living in sin, and he calls her out on it, and she's truthful with it. And I'm sure he expressed all kinds of things to her and told her all kinds of things about her personal life and private life and declared only things that she would know. And not only was she a woman, and not only was she a Samaritan woman, and not only was she a sinful Samaritan woman, but she was such a sinful Samaritan woman of the type that she was considered an outcast in her society. That's indicated because when is she drawing water? At noon, high noon, the heat of the day. The women usually go together in the morning when it's not so hot, get water for their house. It's it's implied that she's there all alone, not with anybody else. She's going to go to the well when nobody else would be there because she's probably been ostracized and seen as an outcast to society. See, there, there are respectable sinners, and then there are sinners who are not respected by the rest of the sinners. You know what I'm saying? And that's what she was. It's kind of like we read last week and Wednesday that a woman caught in adultery was brought to Jesus and... The supposed righteous men said, the law says to stone her. What what, what do you say? And what does Jesus say? He says, you without sin, you throw the first stone. You think you're so righteous. You think you're so holy. You're in the same situation as she is. You deserve judgment. You deserve a stoning. And their conscience convicted them. But you have those who are considered black sheep of the family, black sheep of society, that even the sinners consider them extraordinarily sinful and this is the woman he finds himself with this is the woman that Jesus is seeking to save and not only that as I mentioned earlier he's doing this out in the open in the middle of the day he's not trying to hide it he he, he is he has no shame in mingling with people And being associated with the scourge of the earth. He has no problem with that. Because every situation he finds himself in, he's there to redeem it. He's there to bring those people out. He's there to bring a light in darkness. He's there to bring something forth that is beautiful. Now, before I get into three quick points I want to make, and I'll be done. Oftentimes this scripture is used as a means of personal evangelism or a motivation for us to evangelize because when the disciples come back, he talks about the whitened harvest and we need laborers and we need to go out and reap a harvest and work for that harvest. But what you cannot miss, yes, we should use this scripture and apply the same heart and ministry of Jesus to our own in that we go and seek to save the lost and we love every single person. But what you cannot miss first and foremost is do not put yourself in the place of Jesus seeking somebody. You need to first put yourself in the place of this woman. You are that woman. You are the woman. It doesn't matter how good we think we are. It doesn't matter if we're Nicodemus or if we're this woman at the well. We are that individual who needs grace. We're neither beyond the need of grace or beyond the reach of grace. It doesn't matter if you're up or down. You are out and you need the grace of God. And this woman is you and me. And Jesus came down and sought you. And by the grace of God, are you sitting here today? By the grace of God, are you saved? By the grace of God, if you're not saved right now, you're hearing this message. And you will be accountable to it. Right now, God is seeking every single one of us. He sought you from the very beginning by sending His Son, by sending His Holy Spirit. And He works incessantly to save people, to deliver people to set the captives free, to open up blind eyes. He desires to work in our lives and we were just as broken, just as sinful, just as disreputable, just as dirty as this woman. Every single one of us. None of us can be so full of ourselves and our own morality and good works that we can think, I'm a good person. We have nothing good except Jesus in us. We're just as broken. We're as that rose that's mangled and drooping and missing parts and bruised and battered. And there's nothing in this world that can save us. There's nothing in this world that can make us whole. There's nothing in this world that can redeem us. Yet, the love of Jesus Christ, God who was rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, he sent his son to save. He sent his son to seek out the one. He leaves the 91 and he goes and he goes and he goes. He traverses the dark hills and he goes until he finds that one and he brings him back and he rejoices over that one. Jesus wants you. Jesus wants you on the day of conversion, before conversion, on the day of conversion. He wants you right now. He's always seeking a place in your life of authority, a place of glory, which will always lead to a place of blessing in your life. Jesus wants you. Doesn't matter how dirty you think you are, doesn't matter how sinful, doesn't matter what your parents have done, what's been done to you, what you've done. Jesus' grace and blood is greater. The grace of God is greater than our sin, always. Where sin is great and abounds, the grace of God is always more. Always more. And so I'd like to draw. Quick, a quick three points of application for us in regards to the nature of Jesus in relation to his pursuit of the sinner. Number one, we learn that Jesus is intentional. Jesus is intentional. At the very end of chapter three, going into the beginning of chapter four, the very reason that Jesus leaves Judea is because it is told to the Pharisees that the disciples of Jesus are baptizing more than John the Baptist. Well, Jesus knows the reaction of the Pharisees is going to be, they're going to come and try to take me. And they're going to take me too soon. And I lay my life down. Nobody takes it. I take my life. I lay it down. And I know what's in the heart of the Pharisees. They're going to want to come and take me Though I've not baptized anybody, my disciples are baptizing a lot of people. I'm now on the Pharisees' radar. They're going to try to take me out. And I think it's best that I just go ahead and leave the area and go to the northern area of Israel. I'm going to go to Galilee. But I have to go somewhere else first. And, and what may seem like a situational response by Jesus Everything that Jesus is doing, what may seem like in response to others, is all done with intention and with forethought. Everything Jesus is doing, he's not being pushed around by other people. He's not being pushed around and forced to change his plans by anybody else. He is omniscient. He's both God and man. And he knows exactly what he's going to do, how he's going to do it, And we see this in the story here in John chapter 4. Jesus doesn't accidentally cross paths with this woman. He doesn't accidentally come across this woman all by herself at this well. This was a God-ordained appointment that before the foundations of the world, God loved that woman. And he did not cross paths with that woman by accident. Nobody is saved by accident. Nobody is born by accident into the kingdom of God. God knows them. He sees them. He knew them before he formed them in their mother's womb. And he pursues those individuals. And when he crossed paths with this woman before the foundations of the world, that moment, Jesus in the flesh, he knew was coming, and he desired to seek and to save that woman. Jesus is intentional He's intentional. He's always at work. I don't, it is, if you have an unsaved child, an unsaved spouse, if, if you have issues that you're dealing with when it comes to unsaved people in your life, I want you to know God is using all means necessary to reach those individuals. God's not taken by surprise. He's not haphazardly pursuing people. He is intentional. He's pursuing people. He knows them by name. He knows the hairs on their head. He knows how tall they are. He knows all the secrets of their heart and he's pursuing people. He leaves the 99. He goes after the one because he knows the one by name. He notices in the midst of a 99 sheep, he knows that there's one missing. And he is intentional in pursuing that one. Jesus is intentional. Number two, Jesus is relational. Jesus is relational. Oftentimes, we read throughout the Gospels how that the multitudes followed after Jesus. Thousands and thousands of people, throngs of people would go after Jesus because they heard of all the supernatural signs he was doing and the the revolutionary things he was saying. And throngs of people always pursued him. Wherever Jesus was, so was the multitude. But what makes Jesus exceptionally precious to me is that he always ministered to the one. He he, he intentionally chose 12 men to pour into their lives, not by just um, disconnected uh, statements, but he knew these men, first name basis. He was with these, these 12 disciples day in, day out. He poured into their lives. And then you see his interaction with individuals throughout the Gospels. It's it's one thing to preach to the multitude. It's it's one thing to preach to, to, to just a mass of people without any one distinct face that's in front of you. But then to deal with one person and their peculiarities and their particular personality and their particular past and their particular propensities, to deal with that one person... Jesus always made room for the one because he is relational. And he ministered to this woman one-on-one. He knew her name. He knew her story. He knew her better than she even knew herself. Are you thankful that you serve a personal Jesus today? He's a personal Savior. He's one you can know, and he knows you and he's as close to you as a brother. He's as a friend. He is a brother. He is your Lord. He is your Father. He is near and dear to you. He's not far removed, up just some ethereal God up in the heavens, but he's living within you. He's a personal God who desires to speak to you in every life situation, specifically to your situation. All of us are come under the authority of the same word, don't we? What applies to one applies to all when it comes to the commands of God. But but what if there's a situation in your life where you need direction, you need guidance, you don't know how to respond? What's so amazing is that the Holy Spirit within you, he leads you and guides you in specific instances of life. You know, the Bible doesn't tell me, take this job. But the Holy Spirit within me will lead me and speak to me and give me guidance and wisdom and direction on whether if I should take this job or that job. Because he's a personal God. No other religion can claim that. Every religion has their books. Every religion has their authority. But no religion, and truly Christianity is not a religion, but no other faith has such a personal God. Jesus is relational. As a man, he got thirsty, he got hungry, he got tired. And we see all three in this story, don't we? The whole reason he's sitting there at the well is because he's thirsty, give me a drink. Where are his disciples? They're at the Samaritan village getting food because he's hungry. And he's sitting down waiting for them because he's tired. He's fully God, but he's fully man. And he made himself subject to all of the human experience. And you know what that means? That means he can relate to your experience in life. We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities. For he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He knows what you face, he knows what you're going through. He can relate to you because he is relational. And number three, I'll leave you here. Jesus is superior. We learn from this text that Jesus is superior. Look at your Bibles. Look at verse 11 4 and 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater? Are you greater, she says, than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. Verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Yes, I'm superior to Jacob. Yes, I'm superior to our forefathers. I'm superior to the temple on Mount Gerizim. I'm superior to the temple in Jerusalem. I'm superior, as a matter of fact, I'm the fulfillment of all things prophesied in the Old Testament. The substance is... Me, I am the better covenant. I am the better lamb. I am the better sacrifice. I am better than everything else. And also, I'm better than any sin you can give yourself to. You'll take part in sin and be appeased for a season. It's pleasurable for a season, but it leaves you empty and dry and wanting. But I am better. I'm superior to anything else you could try in this life more than sex and drugs and alcohol and money and houses and lands and all the accolades you can get from people. I am greater. I will. Give you water and you'll never thirst again. And that water, that Holy Spirit within you, will become a well bubbling over. And you'll have a continual flow of this water that will satisfy you and fulfill you and bring you joy and bring you peace and contentment. I am superior to everything else you've tried. You've had five husbands. You're living with another man right now. You've tried everything and you're empty and you're dry. But take the water I give you, and you'll never thirst again. And that same message to that woman is the same message the Lord preaches to us today and comes from this word. Only he can satisfy. Only he can fulfill. Only he can quench our thirst because only he is better than everything else. Jesus is superior. You can try everything else you want. I can guarantee you. There's a lot of things I can't guarantee you. But I can guarantee you, you try everything else in this world, every other religion, you do everything else you can, you will be found wanting and empty. Every single time. Every single time. Come help me, please. I'll leave you with something that I observed in a new light here recently reading this story. We know the woman leaves Jesus' presence with great joy. It's indicated, it's like she's just excited to go tell other people. And we don't know, it doesn't explicitly say that she placed her faith in Christ and became a Christian, but... In disciple-like fashion, what does she do? She goes and tells others. And what so has just caused me to rethink and something I've observed was, look at verse 29. She's excited, okay? She's excited, she's just, she's just encountered the Messiah. She's just encountered God in the flesh and look at verse 29. Remember, remember her past. Remember who she is. Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. I don't know about you, but if I had somebody standing in front of me who knew everything I did, I would be a mess. You think you're bad. You don't know my badness. God forbid the thoughts and Challenges of my life would be put onto a billboard. You would think I'm disgusting. He saw everything in her heart. He disclosed to her everything she's ever done, and she's happy about it. She's rejoicing. He told me everything. He told me I was adulterous. He told me that I was living in sin. He told me everything. I got to go tell everybody else about this which indicates to us there is this transformation that's taken part in her life and she wants to depart from sin and live in holiness and righteousness and she's not condemned in the presence of God. In the presence of all these religious people and hypocrites and Pharisees, every single person is burdened down by the heavy weight of the requirements of the law and requirements of man and traditions of men. But Jesus comes and says, I'll take the weight for you. Get yoked up with me. Learn from me. I'll teach you. I'll give you rest. I'll give you peace. And you can be safe in my presence. I'm not going to condemn you. Come to me. Humble yourself. Receive this living water. And you can walk in joy. And you can't help but go tell other people. Amen? You can't help but tell those all around you. And the wonderful beauty of this is that she was an effective evangelist. And that the result was, first of all, she went to the men because the men knew her very well and the women probably wouldn't receive her so quickly. But the Bible says, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay. And many more believed because of his own word. Last scripture, last verse. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. You cannot live off of somebody else's experience. You cannot live off of the faith of your mother or father or grandparents or spouse. You have to have your own personal encounter with a living Christ and know for yourself This is the one. And we have tasted and seen that he is good for ourselves. And you will never be ashamed or be let down. Would you stand with me?